Section 64, the start of Office versus NetDocs. The concepts are all there in the technology that we will be prepared to ship in the course of the next year. Steve Ballmer transcript from the Forum 2000 event. The demonstration within the multi-hour series of keynotes was billed as a sneak preview of something that hadn't been demoed before, technology that embodied the .NET user experience. This is real code. This technology will apply very broadly in the future across Microsoft's products such as Windows.NET, Office.NET, as well as the consumer subscription service. What followed was a 15-minute demonstration of word processing, spreadsheet, email, calendaring that all looked like Office. The demonstration was easier to use, sleeker, and more connected. It featured enthralling technologies like the Universal Canvas and XML. What's not to like? Within a news cycle, the demonstration had ballooned to Office.net and was the future of Office. Within Microsoft, especially within systems, nothing was higher praise than being the future project, and conversely, nothing was worse than being the past. The world of dueling codenames has been brought to Office, except now it was Office.net and whatever I was working on, aka Office 10. What had been shown was being built by a separate team, an organizational peer of the newly christened Old Office. The online version includes headlines for this technology demonstration that were just brutal. So much about Office being old and NetDocs being new. What was this and where did it come from? Was anyone building a product called Office.net? Was this planned? I certainly knew the code being demonstrated, but the idea that it was presumed to be the future of Office was newsworthy, even though we did not say that directly and had not intended to leave that impression as far as I knew. Nobody wants to Osborne the most profitable part of Microsoft in reference to a well-known microcomputer company from the 80s. It was weird. Starting in early January of 2000, coinciding with Steve Ballmer's promotion to CEO and Bill G. assuming the new role of chief software architect, Bill G. and Paul Ma began working on a series of strategy offsites, meetings, brainstorms, memos, and more called Next Generation Windows Services, or NGWS as we called it. There was even a new leadership team formed called the TLT, Technology Leadership Team. Everything was kicked off with memos from both Bill and Steve highlighting NGWS. Bill explained in a memo, opportunities in the software decade, that NGWS was a bet on par with the graphical interface in both the transformation and opportunity. By now, I was seeing this as a familiar playbook. If you want to say something is big, then compare it to the graphical interface. Steve also had a memo, changes and opportunities. These memos, Bill's detailing the technology at a very high level, and Steve's articulating a customer and business focus, put forward an innovation agenda for the company. The goal was to let Microsofties know the company was committed to innovation, especially with the rise of dot-com companies and huge valuation of anything internet in the public markets. It would be a few months until the market corrected itself, but Microsoft at this juncture was generally in a defensive posture. A broad rebranding was intended to create a new narrative for the company, supported by a next generation of technologies designed for the internet from the ground up, at least starting from Windows. Just days after Bill's memo, there was a call for participation in the NGWS planning sessions. A detailed series of offsites and meetings were, were scheduled. Literally, the invitation stated the work was to figure out the details of NGWS, as was previously introduced in the memos. In other words, we had a brand before we knew its meaning. 
That is not entirely fair because there were at least two key strategies under development. A series of projects defining consumer internet services, such as email, calendaring, and identity, were being developed by a group of the most senior leaders previously of Windows NT and from others around the company, an effort that would later become known as Hailstorm, consumer-focused experiences that also provided a platform for developers. A second effort encompassed the creation of a new programming platform for building internet applications on Windows Server, which was just getting the name .NET. This initiative included a variety of tools and platform work that built on the lessons from the first generation of internet applications. To confuse matters, the .NET branding was starting to be picked up by a range of groups and products across the company, including the next release of Windows NT Server, which was sometimes referred to as Windows.NET, originally codenamed Whistler, then later Windows Server 2002, and finally when it shipped Windows Server 2003. The .NET name was also used for the APIs and programming tools, which would collectively be called the .NET Framework for programming both servers and desktops. If you're confused reading this, then you're not alone. NGWS was an umbrella term for everything, and .NET was intended to be a technology term, but we sort of ended up with two umbrella terms. The .NET branding was one of the more chaotic and self-inflicted product naming efforts. Was it .NET in all lowercase? In all uppercase or in mixed case? Was it before or after a product name? Was there a space or no space? It was all very confusing. Like Bill G's previous memo on software as a service, his memo also lacked any mention of Office. I was beginning to see a pattern. Only now that I was managing Office, I started to wonder if I was somehow contributing to this. Whenever I reviewed the drafts of these memos, I did not seek to include Office out of a reflex to fly under the radar and avoid making promises for work that was not even underway, a strategy reinforced by my time working as Bill's technical assistant. The team always noticed, and I found myself doing my best to explain the virtues of being left out of the strategic fray. Should I have lobbied or been more forceful about including Office? Many would be naturally inclined to run towards the limelight, but so far in Microsoft's history, that proved to be less than helpful. The Cairo operating system project was a top-of-mind example. Paul and the platforms team planned a strategy presentation for the press and industry analysts detailing Microsoft's internet-centric developer strategy. Originally scheduled for early June 2000, the event was delayed several times because of the looming court ruling in the antitrust trial. The NGWS working groups welcomed this extra time. The evangelism efforts did not slow, however, and the first half of 2000 was a steady stream of stories about what NGWS might be, along with the implications of the looming court ruling on NGWS, or perhaps the speculation that NGWS was an effort to end-run the potential court ruling. The Windows team generally loved these strategy days as a key part of the culture. Paul Moritz would often describe them to me as a forcing function, which meant a way to coalesce disparate groups into a shared plan. In this case, the planned event would force upon us a collective definition of NGWS. The industry loved these events, too. They were made for press events. Stories would run describing what could be announced in the lead-up, called curtain raisers, and after the event, there would be ample analysis. As was always the case, the event would gain a nickname or an acronym. The event almost always included a new strategy with its own name or acronym. On the heels of Internet Strategy Day and Windows DNA, Distributed Internet Architecture, the press was anxious to learn what else was on the way. Frequently, such event days would get scheduled with only a vague idea of what would get talked about and shown. This was one of those events. In the weeks leading up to the event were chaotic and high stress. 
While the goal was to present a coherent strategy, the process of creating the strategy was more important, the forcing function. This was how platforms came together as a team. Whether a PDC, Professional Developer Conference, a workshop, or a strategy event, platforms used the process of creating the presentations the same way Office used memos and the vision planning process. Only Office spent months and involved a broad cross-section of the team across disciplines, whereas Windows spent weeks and usually involved only key people, however that might be defined. Instead of detailed plans like we created in Office, the output consisted primarily of bullet points and architectural diagrams or slides. Dubbed Forum 2000, the event proved a seminal moment in the evolution of Microsoft's platform and quickly became known as .NET Strategy Day or .NET Day. And Steve would refer to it as the most ambitious undertaking since Internet Strategy Day in 1995. The event aimed to be almost a mother of all demos in reference to the legendary 1968 demonstration of the first graphical interface, hyperlinks, video conferencing, and mouse. The online version includes a series of headlines from PC Week, eWeek Magazine through the first half of 2000, all before Forum 2000 took place. At this point, Microsoft's approach to strategy presentations was adept at mixing a combination of Bill G-style architecture slides with short and highly and slickly produced video vignettes complete with keyed-in screen mock-ups. The series of scenarios envisioning the future of software enabled by .NET formed the heart of the strategy articulated at Forum 2000. The, this, they featured the gamut of nascent technologies that were frequently talked about, including the tablet pen computers, handwriting, wireless, voice control, video chat, location awareness, presence awareness, notifications, mobile devices, and so much more that were all new at the time. The scenarios and designs had decidedly a consumer feel, including the bubbly buttons and logo type used by MSN. There was a slight problem in that the gap between what the audience saw in those demos and what any team might have been working on was, well, significant. It was not that many technologies were decades away from possibility, but only bits and pieces of a product were being worked on. The role of a platform strategy is to inspire, however, not necessarily detail everything that is available in short order. Like the 1994 Information at Your Fingertips keynote, these sketches of the future were prescient and designed to create a North Star for the company, a favorite expression, and even the industry. So while it was a challenge to be so far out, it was intentional. Unlike previous visionary presentations, Forum 2000 was far more specific in terms of a product roadmap. That was the problem. Today, one might look at these presentations and the underlying products that emerged as evidence of many ideas where Microsoft was early, but for one reason or another, fumbled in the transition to the modern world. It is fair to say Microsoft was early to many shifts over the years, but it, also, it is also often the case being early ends up being wrong as well. When one is early and fails, the problem is usually that the culture or technology underpinnings are not yet mature enough to support the vision, or the market isn't ready yet. One could go through each of the technologies shown to realize the decade that would be required to bring them to market. Tablet PCs required screens and processors that did not exist. Hand and writing recognition had been stuck at a level of reliability that was more frustrating than useful. Mobile devices would undergo a huge transformation with touchscreens and ubiquitous data connectivity. The services talked about would ultimately arrive with an entirely different architecture than Microsoft was building out at the time. Technology such as XML would be widely used, but as commoditized as plain text files have always been and confer no real proprietary advantage as Microsoft hoped. Other technologies such as virtualization that were likely key to the early cloud era 
had been rejected and would not play a part in the Microsoft server strategy for another five years. Early efforts tend to be pointed in the right general direction, but the small errors or incorrect initial assumptions compounded over time and ultimately diverged far too much from what eventually makes it to market. Strategically, the comparison to the transition to the graphical interface was front and center and was used several times throughout the presentation. Our shared desire to repeat that transition and the success that followed provides evidence that being early is good. Windows arrived before the computational power and memory capacity could run the software we built. Taking time for technology to catch up did not deter us. Perhaps what would ultimately trip us up, however, was the grandeur and interconnectedness of our collective plans that left little room for execution error or for influences from the outside world and what was transpiring on the internet at a rapid pace. As many would note critically following the event, it was still all about Windows at the center, and to be a truly new strategy, the conventional wisdom held Windows needed to be abandoned. It was not at all clear to me that was a mistake, though. It does make a simpler narrative. There's an online edition of a slide from Forum 2000 that shows the transition to the graphical interface as being made explicit as a comparison. This was a peak moment for the catchphrase developed in response to the antitrust complaint of integrating software into Windows. Integrated innovation. We overachieved on integrated innovation in that everything was integrated with Windows, as we thought we should be permitted to. Our defense was also our strategy and our technology foundation. Nevertheless, the industry was excited by all this big talk. If there was a theme to the day, it was innovation. Every section of the day featured an explicit slide literally calling out innovation. This was a subtle jab at the critics and regulators who felt Microsoft achieved the dominant position and had grown subsequently complacent. Innovation highlights were provided for .NET services, .NET user experience, .NET programming, small business, large business users, and so on. That's a lot of innovation. In addition to the videos, we showed live demonstrations of code, the earliest tablet PC prototype and handwriting recognition, a new browser-based services for small business, and a technology demonstration described below. Perhaps more abstractly, the day was about a new era for Microsoft. There were the existing products, and from this point forward, there were new products built in new ways that would solve the problems the old products had built up. Everything was going to be faster, take less memory, reduce administrative burdens, and provide new levels of capability and convenience for customers. Microsoft clearly divided the world into old and new. That was a bold move, and companies almost always lacked the fortitude to make such statements clearly. Competitively and concretely, .NET, using the term broadly as everyone did, was Microsoft's answer to Java for server programming. That was the big battle driving the platform strategy. Java had captured the hearts and minds of developers building web server applications. The .NET technology for enterprise software development would go on to create the platform that dominated in-house enterprise IT software, creating a generation of .NET programmers who today are more comfortable with Microsoft as a provider of cloud infrastructure, even if it's Linux. While the .NET programming tools would, be, would launch over the next year, this was the first real stake in the ground. On the PC desktop client, we had won with Internet Explorer and felt confident there, which allowed the vision for the user experience portions of the presentations to move forward with fewer constraints and a focus on what was done on the PC, but also supported in the browser, a desktop-first strategy. 
It took 18 months before the first product release with the .NET architecture, VisualStudio.NET, which was also the first product to use the .NET name. The, dot, the server product line underwent a pivot to support the new capabilities. Ultimately, .NET and its companion and proprietary programming language, C Sharp, were enormously successful for servers and tools and came to define the era of enterprise client-server computing. So much so that most of today's leaders in IT were products of the .NET era, and as a result, Microsoft created a generation of IT leaders strongly connected to the company. Much of Microsoft's strength today in enterprise accounts can be directly tied to IT leaders that rose up the ranks by betting on .NET. The online version includes another slide from the presentation showing the roadmap and timelines of specific deliverables. That's in response to feedback from previous presentations where we didn't show that enough. Closer to home, the session on user experience, which was really about Office, featured a presentation by a group building what instantly became known as Office.net, even though there was a clear demarcation of term technology demonstration that we love to think these small changes in wording brought us air cover or permitted distinctions between products and directional demonstrations. To clarify, the technology demonstration did not claim to be Office.net, but the roadmap slide of the product releases we presented at the same time used the name office.net and provided a 2002 plus ship date. The technology came from Brian McDonald, email Brian Mack, the creator of Outlook, who upon leaving Outlook started up a new team called NetDocs for network documents. NetDocs reported to Bob Muglia, my manager at the time as well, though Brian and I had not crossed paths all that much since Outlook. We were both focused on what needed to get done separately. Brian formed the NetDocs team much the same way he built the Outlook team, growing the team to over 100 people in short order. The vision for the product was expansive and included many hot new technologies. It was also being written in the latest technologies, including the Magic Technology Extensible Markup Language, which was becoming increasingly popular as part of programming for the browser. And more importantly, it was using many of the new capabilities in Internet Explorer. XML was also the latest Magic Beans technology that took on capabilities much greater than reality. Brian had a knack for constructing expansive visions assembled with the strategic technologies as we saw with the creation of Outlook. As with Outlook, these technologies were new, unproven, and unfinished. Outlook did quite well, though. The scenarios enabled by NetDocs vision subsumed Office, particularly Outlook, Word, and Excel, and more, but with a decidedly modern take. By modern, the implication was that people no longer needed to worry about which Office app to use as it was one single document type, the universal canvas, that worked equally well with words, numbers, graphics, and email, and was easier to use because of that. This was not a new vision, and in fact, the idea of integrated packages had a history of attempts from both Lotus and Ashton Tate in the pre-Windows era, as well as Microsoft Works app, a modest success for a price-sensitive customers. The all-in-one application was a favorite among the first generation of PC users, and Bill G in particular, who routinely complained about overlap and redundancy across the various modules in Office, his favorite way to describe an app. Would this time be different? Did the processing power and memory finally enable this? NetDocs set out to prove it could. The online version includes some screenshots to the, the demonstration, as well as links to videos. I was skeptical. But from my position in office, skepticism was viewed by others as defensive and territorial. I wasn't being defensive. I just didn't think it could work. 
Others projected it could be a $1 billion business within three years. A running joke at the time was that every new product idea somehow needed to include digital photos. And Forum 2000 was no exception. Every demo included digital photos in some form. Digital cameras were the hot consumer item, and sharing photos on the internet was becoming mainstream. NetDocs not only included photos, but to illustrate the importance of photos, a product that was extremely innovative but languishing at retail without sales and marketing support, Microsoft PhotoDraw, was reorganized into NetDocs as part of the team. This method of building a new team by acquiring other internal teams and jettisoning their existing product was a strategy employed with Outlook as well. I was a big fan of PhotoDraw, and to me, it was one of the many examples of innovative tools Microsoft created that were unable to capitalize on because it was too small on its own and too niche to be part of Office. This will become a familiar theme shortly. There was another running joke that every new product idea being dreamed up somehow also included email. Email was the anchor of the internet and became a big deal for America Online, Yahoo, and our MSN. Microsoft was a clear email leader with Exchange, but that was for business. For consumers, Microsoft's MSN division acquired Hotmail in 1997, the first web-based, viral, and free email. The number of email users on that service was approaching 100 million when the internet population was roughly 300 million at the time. NetDocs also became email. That should not be a surprise given the roots of the team and the leaders. Photos, email, calendaring, XML, word processing, spreadsheets, that's a lot, a lot to like. NetDocs also enabled a new subscription business model. There was nothing particularly technical about doing this work, though convincing customers to rent software, as people thought of it at the time, was new. The team was working on a new technology to provide seamless updating of the NetDocs Windows desktop application over the internet. Seamless updates might convince customers of the benefits of rental over ownership, as the product could be enhanced without purchasing anything new. Customers were struggling to deal with updates, most of whom were not yet able to use the new Windows Update service that is now standard on every PC. Given my early experience getting the first version of Outlook to customers, I remained skeptical of NetDocs achieving all that was sketched out, especially without the kind of constraints being part of the Office release imposed on Outlook originally. The amount of code to write, the ever-changing scope and resistance to constraints, the huge challenges of building some compatibility and interoperability with Office, as well as the fragility of the technology foundation, as the latest and greatest always seem to be, were not usually a recipe for success and seemed quite familiar. The success Outlook achieved, due in no small part to being free and bundled with Office, and more importantly, the only client for Exchange email, provided a halo of sorts for NetDocs. This is a good lesson in how success in a big company can take many forms beyond customers laying out their cash for a product. I had not paid attention to NetDocs, nor NetDocs to Office, and now suddenly, and without warning, NetDocs was front and center strategically for the company. NetDocs was filling a void in the strategy, at least internally, which was that for .NET platforms to be successful, it needed a killer Office application. I should have realized that to... For the platform to be successful, it needed that to happen. I should have realized that going to the NGWS meetings, but I did not. I managed the Office 10 project, aware of the costs of choosing to lay low, that people would view Office as failing to support the new platform, even acknowledge the future. In an industry, and especially a company, where the next version is always way better than the current version, it was challenging to take this approach. The old versus new dynamic always create tensions in a large company. 
Echoing Innovator's Dilemma, again, a series of press stories played out over the several months. While there were grumblings and overwhelmingly people on the respective product teams who were not consumed with potential overlap between NetDocs and Office, Microsoft had a long history of next-generation products that fizzled. When will NetDocs replace Office? Will Office stand by and allow NetDocs to replace it? Will customers be confused? How will the market deal with two kinds of Office products? This was a far cry from the Cairo versus Windows NT or the Windows NT versus 95 battles that played out over the years. At least I thought that to be the case. During these times, the negatives of the market that the market perceives of the incumbent are amplified irrationally. Software bloat, nothing left to add, slowing growth in the business, and more. Simultaneously, the perceived positives of the new product are amplified irrationally. Sleek, modern, simpler, faster, lighter weight, innovative, and new. Microsoft was great at setting up this dynamic. I had been the poster child for old technology and resistance to change more than once. Recall Java Office, Component Office, Web Office. And while I couldn't brush it off, in the case of NetDocs and Office, there was quite a bit of bashing externally of a product that was half the company's products. The internal tension was significant, but not because of a deliberate product competition or organizational competition for resources, but because there was no way to constructively align the past office with an ever-expanding vision of a future office. Regardless of the strategy, NetDocs could have laid low and first spent a couple of years building a product. It just wanted to Microsoft's culture to do so at this time, given the demands to put a big vision out there. Nothing could stop the Forum 2000 train. This was exactly what NGWS needed. There was a broad satisfaction with the event, even though ongoing legal challenges clouded the strategic presentations and the strategy itself. Deciding how to show NetDocs at Forum 2000 was controversial, at least with me, and probably not many others. I was usually the most conservative about showing products or features with an uncertain path to shipping, let alone version 1 products built on version 1 technologies accomplishing new scenarios that often didn't pan out. There were also legitimate concerns that word of a modern Office.net could slow or halt progress on enterprise agreements in an extremely touchy post.com bubble business environment. That's the Osborne effect. After many email threads prior to the event, NetDocs ended up showing basic features such as typing into a word processor like screen and summing a column of numbers without launching a spreadsheet and a calendar scenario that used XML technology to merge personal and work calendars such as a Seattle Mariners calendar. This session painfully reiterated the technology demonstration aspects of the demo and never once used the phrase office.net, though the prominence of office.net on the roadmap slide left few to have dots to connect. To mitigate the risk to enterprise agreements, the demo is said to be relevant to Microsoft's new small business offering, briefly called B-Central. For almost another decade, B-Central was the office strategy for the web and internet-targeted small business. This compartmentalized a new approach to the, a less risky market segment where Microsoft had more upside than downside. For big business, there were they were pushed to see things through the lens of Windows Server and the software housed in company data centers along with desktop office, all available with an enterprise agreement. This was a defensive approach, but was consistent with how customers thought about Microsoft products. Word and Excel were indispensable tools for small business, and increasingly Outlook, with many add-ons, was the preferred tool for small businesses to manage sales and customers. My customers could not buy Exchange and set up Windows Active Directory and file print servers fast enough. In practice, operationalizing the transition outlined was more practical and somewhat defensive, echoing Innovator's Dilemma.
The Wall Street Journal was quick to pick up on the potential challenges, as well as in a story by Rebecca Buckman shortly after the event. Microsoft readies a new office while renovating the old standby, where she wrote, What does a company do when its single biggest product is in danger of being eclipsed by new technologies? If that company is Microsoft Corp and the product is Office, it sets up a stealth team of crack engineers to dream up a brand new version of the software suite while continuing to crank out the old standby. It's a tough two-track strategy that is pitted today development team against a tomorrow team, as one person close to the teams puts it. And it's still unclear, he says, how today and tomorrow will meet. As we know now, the danger of being eclipsed did not materialize. We deliberately and somewhat nervously made that bet as previously defined. The teams were not pitted against each other, not yet anyway. PC Week reporter Mary Jo Foley loved the NetDoc story and wrote about it many times. By the end of the year, a few months after Forum 2000, she said in a story, NetDocs, Microsoft's .NET poster child, where she described the product as follows. NetDocs is a single integrated application that will include a full suite of functions, including email, personal information management, document authoring tools, digital media management, and instant messaging. Microsoft will make NetDocs available only as a hosted service over the internet, not as a shrink-wrapped application or software that's preloaded on a PC. NetDocs will feature a new user interface that looks nothing like Internet Explorer or Windows Explorer. Instead, NetDocs will deliver an integrated workspace based on the extensible markup language, XML, where all of its application modules are available simultaneously. This interface is based on .NET technology that Microsoft in the past has referred to as the universal canvas. There was nothing sinister about what was going on. It was just going on. We were busy and well into building Office 10. At the very least, until NetDocs was usable or self-hostable by more people, the best thing to do was let them keep writing code and hope they stopped trying to recruit people from the Outlook team. NetDocs versus Office was just going to simmer for a while. There was no way around that. Because we were in the midst of shipping eight months ago, and NetDocs now had a deadline of sorts, 2002 plus, there wasn't room to attempt to reconcile the products, have them relate strategically, or really do much of anything. I was happy to work heads down and not worry about it. Putting Forum 2000 in perspective, Steve B. sent out an all-company follow-up email, briefly laying out the strategy and timeline we were undertaking. He reinforced the huge change by referring to the strategy as Microsoft.net, the space after Microsoft was important, coming very close to rebranding or even renaming the company around this new strategy. Steve said, Microsoft.net will be delivered in three forms, a new user experience, infrastructure and tools, and a set of programmable .NET building blocks. This is a long-term strategy, one that will take years to execute fully. So it is critical that we all stay focused, not only on our goals, but also on the daily steps it will take to achieve. The Office team was focused on Office 10. We would worry about NetDocs later. 